Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Robert Miller. Robert had music in his genes. And today we're talking about how to accomplish your dreams at any age. Robert, welcome. I've got a Mr. Rock musician in the house. I actually <laughs> find it interesting that my show has attracted some rockers. Really? Yes. Who, who are we talking about? I mean, not as big of rockers as you, but... <laughs> couple drummers, Reiner Agassi. Have you checked out his show? I do do not know him. Sorry. The Mixing Board. Okay. Lou Santiago. Yeah, he was a drummer. Colby Acuff did some yodeling. I had a couple people (laughs) play guitar and sing to me. That was fun. I like to mix it up that way. Hey, listen, you, you got a yodeler. Okay. That's already at the top of the list. Right. I was like, you gotta do that on my show. (laughs) professional yodeler huh okay good for you (laughs) i even tried to do it it's actually harder than it seems oh it's ridiculous okay (laughs) that's why nobody does it i think (laughs) yeah so tell me about your love of music i was born into a musical family my father played the trumpet and my parents told me when i was very young that i was going to be a musician whether i liked it or not and they decided that i was going to start on piano which I did when I was about five years old. And I took piano lessons for about a year. And I hated it because, you know, when you're five years old, who wants to practice the piano? I didn't appreciate any of this stuff. And my, my parents then said to me, okay, you don't have to play piano, but you have to play something else. So what else do you want to play? So I picked the trumpet because that's what my father played. And uh, I did that throughout junior high and high school. You know, I was in the orchestra. I was in the band, all of that stuff. But in the middle of all of that, this little band from England came out called the Beatles, and that changed music. And suddenly it was not very cool to be playing the trumpet any longer. You know, everybody's playing guitar. So me and my buddies, we all went out. We bought these cheap little acoustic guitars. And then we found out that the Beatles played electric guitars. And we said, "Uh oh, we're in trouble now because we don't have the money for electric guitars. So we figured out that we could take these little reel-to-reel tape recorders that we all had, these little Norelco tape recorders, and they all came with a microphone. So we literally scotch taped the microphone onto the body of the guitar. And now we had electric guitars. (laughs) So... That, that's how I got started playing rock and roll music when I was in my early teens. And then I just continued to play for the rest of my life. Oh, my gosh. I'm curious what it takes to be a good trumpet player. What did you learn about the trumpet? Well, the first thing it takes is two lips. OK, if you only got one lip, you're in a lot of trouble. But if you have two lips and you don't mind developing like, um, you know, the armature, as they call it, and getting a callus on your lip, if you ever take a look at a picture like of, of Louis Armstrong. He had this big callus on his upper lip because you know he was playing trumpet all the time. So that's what most trumpet players have. But it, you know, it's a very nice instrument. I, I enjoy playing the trumpet. And I learned from the trumpet 
the treble clef, you know, this treble clef and bass clef. And the reason that I became a bass player is because when I had this little band that I was talking about, and we're all trying to figure out how to play rock and roll music, we knew that there was at least one guy in every band that played the bass and not the regular guitar. And uh, my friends were having trouble just learning anything. And I already knew the treble clef from the trumpet. So I volunteered that I would learn the bass clef. And that's how I became a bass player. A very uh, a weird story, but you know that's what most bass players become bass players for a reason. That was my reason. Yeah, tell me the difference between bass players and guitarists. Anything well, the, there? The bass players are the coolest guys in the band. Okay, that's all you need to know. All right, you know the guitar players get all the girls. They've got all the fame, but the bass player and the drummer, you know, they set the tone for the band. They lock in. They get the rhythm going. You know, anything you like, anything you're dancing to, anything you're snapping your fingers to, it's because of the bass and the drums. Just telling it like it is. I love that. As a kid, did you like to put on performances for your family? Yeah, you know, I did to some extent. My father was not into rock and roll at all. So that was a problem. But he and I used to play duets on the trumpet, which was fun. And we would do the duets for my mother, okay, because she requested them. So that's the kind of performances that we did back then. And my father used to play weddings and private parties and bar mitzvahs and things like that on the weekend. And when I became proficient enough, he would put me into the band. So that's what I did for several years. I went out with him. We did these things. We call them club dates. So, you know, you play all of the popular music at the time, the twist. And, you know, all the other dances that were going on at that time. And you play standards. And that's what that's what I did for a number of years. It was actually very good because it made me more well-rounded. It sounds like such beautiful memories with your dad. I mean, was he so excited when you picked up the trumpet? I think he was, you know, and we used to play, uh, like I said, we used to play duets together. He had this book and the book was a duets book. And we would, you know, just that that would be one of the ways in which we would bind together. So it was fun. I did enjoy that. Was he a good teacher or did you do better learning from somewhere else? Oh, no, he wasn't a good teacher at all. No. And my, the thing about my dad was he did everything by ear. In other words, he had no formal lessons. And yet he was terrific. He just had a, a terrific musical ear. And I kind of picked that up from him because I haven't had that much formal training. I never went to a music school or something like that. So I think you can pick up an awful lot on your own in music. And, you know, there's so many great musicians that just kind of learned without formal training. I mean, all the great ones that you probably listen to, there's so few of them that learn from formal training. It's, it, you either have it or you don't. That's kind of the way it is. How many instruments can you play? I can play a bunch of them pretty poorly. <laughs> I mean, I do play a little bit of piano. I do play a little bit of guitar. I still play a little bit of trumpet. And the bass is my main instrument. So that's kind of my, my repertoire. So you said you either have it or you don't. Do you really believe that? Or do you think there are certain instruments that are easier to get proficient at? Oh, sure. I mean, if you if you play the tambourine, that's pretty easy. Or the triangle, you know, I'm teasing, of course, there are great, great musicians that play percussion instruments. And you know, there's, there's technique for everything. So I don't think that there are any instruments that are just much easier than other instruments. But one thing I, I always recommend to people when when they talk about their kids, and you know, what instrument should they start their kids on? And I say, well, do you want your kids to go to a good college? And they always say, yes. I said, well, then teach them how to play the oboe or the French horn, because, you know, you always have room in the, the band or the orchestra in colleges 
for a really good oboe or French horn player, because not that many kids go for those things. So, so if you want your kid to get into Harvard, forget about studying, play the oboe. <laughs> wow, that's, that's interesting. I also took piano and didn't want to practice or really take it seriously. And I went to a youth performing arts school. So I think that I should have because the singers who knew how to sight read music and knew how to play piano definitely had an advantage. Do you wish that you would have paid more attention to the piano? You know, sure. I, I definitely at this point wish I, I had done more. But, you know, that's just the way it was. I started my, my kids on piano as well. They, they both dropped the piano because they didn't want to do it. They didn't take anything else up. I didn't make them take other instruments up. And to this day, they go, Dad, why didn't you make us practice? Why did you let us drop the piano? I said, well, what can I say? You'll have to learn it on your own, I guess. So let's talk about when you decided to learn it and take it seriously. Well, I always thought when I was when I was younger, when I was in my teens, that I was going to be a professional musician. That was that was it. I mean, I loved music. I had my teenage band. We were called the Buccaneers, by the way. And we played all the top 40 songs and all of that stuff. And then later on, I got introduced to jazz. I got very, very lucky when I was in my later teens. I signed up for a, a, a music program over the summer. And as part of the program, they set you up with a personal teacher. And just by absolute dumb luck, they set me up with a guy named Jimmy Garrison, who happened to be John Coltrane's bass player. And this man was a wonderful, wonderful human being, as well as a wonderful bass player. And in the course of just a couple of months, he taught me all the rudiments of jazz, which was, you know, a foreign language to me at the time. And then I went back to, to college in Boston, and he gave me one person's number to look up. And I looked up that guy and he played the, the piano and we started playing together. And for the next five years, we were just playing everywhere in Boston. And that was great because I loved it. It, w it was the 1970s. It was the era of jazz fusion, which was a fusion of rock and jazz. So it had the power and the beat and the strength of rock. And it had all of the improvisation of jazz. It was a wonderful era in music. And we were front and center doing that in Boston. I had also graduated college with a degree in broadcasting and film. So my goal at the time was, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in broadcasting during the day and I'll play music at night. And that's how I started off doing it, except I, I forgot one thing. Neither of those jobs paid any money at all. And I was in kind of a desperate strait after a while. Plus, I, I got into broadcasting through the mailroom of a public television station. That's how guys got into the station at the time. And there just wasn't any hiring. I thought I was going to go up in the station. I was going to become, you know, a big producer, a director or something like that. It wasn't happening. So in a moment of severe weakness, I mean, severe weakness, a friend of mine who was in law school said to me, well, why don't you go to law school? And I said, well, why would I want to do that? And he said, well, you're playing with a guy that was a doctor. He was a medical doctor. And he played music and he did his medicine during the day and he did his music at night and it was working for him. He says, you could do the same thing. You could do law during the day and you could play music at night and you could make a living. And I said, oh, I like to make a living part of this. Okay. Because I wasn't doing very well with that. 
And so that's what I did. I went off and I applied to law school. And unfortunately, I did well enough to get into law school. And then when I was in law school, I did well enough that when I graduated, I got, you know, like a, a decent job. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm all set. This is exactly what I wanted to do. I want to do, I'll do the law during the day and I'll play music at night, except that failed spectacularly. Why? Because anybody that knows what it's like to be a lawyer, you got to work 23 hours a day. And uh, that's what happened. I, I found myself working like all the time. And by this time I was married and I had, uh, you know, my first kid and between the job and the marriage and the kid and the responsibilities and all of that stuff, it, there was no way that I had any time for music. And I literally stopped playing music for 15 years. Okay. 15 years. So my whole plan went out the window and I was miserable about the whole thing because that wasn't the plan. The plan was I was going to play music. And finally, when I was in my 40s, I started to get back a little bit into playing. I just kind of beat myself over the head and forced myself to do it. But it was not the same thing that I wanted to do. You know, it was kind of like a hobby. It was more like an avocation. I was doing it on the weekends and all of that. It was good, but it wasn't what I really wanted. And I really wanted, my dream was to, you know, to do music. All, all my friends that, that did that dream when they were in their early 20s, they were, they were successful. I mean, you take a look at all the great musicians out there. They all started when they were 20-ish or something like that. They may be playing now when they're in their 60s or 70s, but they made it when they were in their 20s. And here I was, I was in my 40s, and I, I just wasn't going anywhere. And finally, finally, I'll get to the end of the story, I promise. When I turned 60, I said, okay, it's now or never. And I just made the decision, this is it, I'm going for it. And I jumped into the deep end of the pool. I love it. I kind of want to back up just for a second, though, because I actually have heard of people networking their way up from the mailroom. Did you try? Oh, I tried like crazy. But the problem was when I was in the mailroom, it was an era of inflation in the country. Uh, Gerald Ford was the president. And because of the inflation, there was just no advancement. There were no openings within the station. You know, previously, people would go in the mailroom for a month or two, and then they'd get into the next rung and they'd go up from there. And I, I kept volunteering like crazy everywhere I could, but there were no permanent jobs anywhere. So, that, so I was kind of stuck. I was in limbo. And that's why I felt desperate to do something. I'm also curious about law school and the process of becoming a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> what can I tell you about that? You know, the, the good thing about the, the law and the law school experience is that, you know, we all have the right brain, left brain thing going on where, you know, one side is creative and the other side is much more kind of serious and formal, if you will. And law school definitely teaches you how to think and it teaches you how to make sure that things are being done properly for yourself. To this day, not that I publicize to my musician friends that I've got legal training, but I get a lot of musicians that come to me and ask me, you know, how do I protect myself? What can, what can I do here? And I will always, you know, help them out in any way that I can, because like most people, you know, musicians and, and just lay people in general, they don't really understand what the law is or how to protect themselves. And it's a complicated world. So that part of being a lawyer was, was really good. And I, I did make a living so that I don't have any complaints about it, but it took me away from that dream that I had. And it was almost like, you know, 
if you remember the Back to the Future movies where Michael J. Fox was looking at the, the photograph of his family and there were parts in the movie where the photograph was fading because he wasn't getting closer to the end result that he wanted. Well, that's kind of the way I felt too. My photograph was fading for a number of years. And I just said, I don't want to go to the end of my life regretting that I never gave it a shot. And that was my motivation. And so what I really did was, aside from making a decision that I was going to do something, you know, again, I, I turned 60. That's, you know, they may say that 60 is the new 40, but it's still 60. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, you're not getting any younger at that point. And of course, I had no role models because I didn't know anybody that at that age that was going to, that did what I was about to do, but I didn't care. I, I knew that I needed to do it. It was, it was in my gut. And I really do believe, I believe that everybody has a dream when they're young and very few people ever follow through on those dreams. Why? Because life gets in the way. You know, you, you start out down a certain path. And if you're lucky enough, you stay on that path. But so many people get off that path just because things happen. They fall into a job. They have an obligation. They get married. They have kids. All the things that happened to me. And I took the position that, I, again, I didn't want to regret not having tried it. So I jumped in and I, I made up an action plan. That was the key. Okay, because I said to myself, if I if I start from ground zero and I just say this is what I want to do, uh, it, that's very intimidating. You know, how how do you do that? But if you make up a plan that says, okay, I got to get from point A to point B, and then I've got to get from point B to point C, you do it in baby steps. Well, then it becomes much more manageable, and that's what I did. I I wrote down literally on a on a napkin the first five or ten steps that I needed to take as a musician. I had to start writing music again. I had to put a band together. I had to, you know, practice a little bit more. I had to decide what we were going to play, all the different things that go into that particular profession. And slowly but surely, that's what happened. I actually used Craigslist. I, I put together kind of a mass audition and I got about 30 people that came down for the audition. And from that 30 person audition, I was able to put together the beginning parts of my band, which is called Project Grand Slam. And over the course of time, we just started to practice, play more, get better gigs, record. And, you know, here we are, I'm six years into this. And I'm so proud to say that I've got 10 albums, including a Billboard number one. I've got you know, four or five million video views. I've got another million plus Spotify streams. I've got 50,000 Facebook fans. I've played festivals and concerts all around the world. I've opened up for great artists like uh, Edgar Winter and Blues Traveler, Mindy Abair, Boney James. It's been just a wonderful, wonderful ride. And I attribute it all to the fact that I set out and I said to myself, you know, you're never too old and it's never too late to follow your dream. And that's become my mantra. Do you still have the napkin? You know, I should have saved it. <laughs> you're right. I don't have the napkin. But if anybody wants to buy it from me, I'll recreate the napkin. I'm teasing, of course. Now, that would have been pretty cool if I had saved the napkin. That would have been smart. <laughs> I'm also wondering, were you rusty? And what was it like picking up the instrument? Well, certainly when I came back to it in my 40s, I was rusty as could be. But, you know, I can't I actually the way I came back to this, it's a kind of fun story. I, I live in New York City. And uh, at that time in New York City, there was a place that I referred to as a musician's dating service. 
where you went down to it and you said to them, okay, I want to play Led Zeppelin's second album, the first side. And they, they would find three other idiots that wanted to play the same music. And so, and then they'd throw you into a rehearsal room. They had all the amplifiers and all the instruments and you, you know, knock around, make noise, make music. And it was from that start that I got back into playing again, because I started to find people to play with. And we started to play better and, and more sophisticated music. And then I found out that a friend of mine from growing up had a recording studio and I reconnected with him and I recorded my first album, things like that. And then, you know, I put a band together and we went out on, and we started to play all the clubs and we played a few festivals, but this was again, the, the part of my life where it was an avocation. It wasn't really a full-time thing. It was only later on that I decided this is it. This is what I want to do. Have you had any tears along the way? Oh, my God, of course. <laughs> I make it seem like it all worked out perfectly, but it, that's not the way life goes. You know, I describe it as you take one step forward, two steps back and three steps sideways. We played more gigs than I care to remember where we, it was basically a private concert for the bartender and the, uh, the waitress. But, you know, I said to myself, even during those times, Okay, it's it's like we're getting paid a little bit of money, and I mean just a little bit, to have a rehearsal, and that's what it turns out to be. I think everybody in every profession goes through those kinds of things. You just have to say to yourself, okay, that's the way it is. I got to go forward. I got to do something. I learned a lesson a long, long time ago. Right, I I was one of the ten million people that went to Woodstock, okay, or they claim to have been to Woodstock. And the week before Woodstock, I was actually playing music up in the Catskill Mountains in New York. I was in the show band at one of the hotels there. And it was a great job for the summer, I'll tell you that. But somebody invited me to go hear a band that I had not heard of at the time in a at a bungalow colony. Now, a bungalow colony is like three steps down from a motel, okay? It's just a bunch of little, little houses where people spend the summer, okay? And I go to this bungalow colony. And there's a band that's playing in a trailer. And the name of the band is Jethro Tull, okay, which was only one of the greatest bands of the 1970s. And they put on a concert for about six of us in this trailer for two hours as if they had played Madison Square Garden or Woodstock. Didn't make a difference. They were going to play their set, their music, as if they were playing to 100,000 people. And I never forgot that. So for me... Even if I'm playing, you know, a gig before six people or 10 people or one person or 10,000 people, it doesn't make a difference. You put out 110% effort all the time. Yeah. Were there moments where you're like, I'm on to something? Oh, yeah. The moment that I knew that this had succeeded was in 2018, we got invited to play a couple of festivals in Europe. And the first one was in Norway. And it was a great festival. And we flew from Norway to Serbia. And I promise you, it's not a direct flight. Okay, <laughs> It's about an eight hour odyssey through 12 different countries to get there. And we landed at midnight. And then we had to do an eight hour van ride to get to the place where the concert was going to be. But we, we were invited to play at a festival in Serbia called the Nisville Jazz Festival. And we went on stage, we had barely uh, slept at all. And in the audience, there were 20,000 people, and they had no idea who we were. We were there from the United States. They barely spoke English, probably. But within the span of one hour, 
We got a standing ovation. We had them in the palm of our hand. When I left the stage, there was a whole line of people waiting to take our photograph, get our autograph, etc. They handed me a DVD of the performance, which became an album of ours, which is called Greetings from Serbia. It was a wonderful experience. It just showed me like we had made it. That was my moment. Wow. That's pretty impressive. So now what's the dream? Well, you know, I took my experience, which really was so different from everybody else. Again, I just don't know anybody that's done what I've done. And I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I don't know anybody else that's done it. And people kept saying to me, boy, is this inspiring that you did all of this, you know, at at the age that you were and you, you, you did it from kind of a standing start. And somebody suggested to me, why don't you start a podcast? And, you know, I said to myself, that's an interesting idea. I didn't know much about podcasts at the time. This was only about six months ago. And the problem that I had with music up until then is, you know, the music industry has changed dramatically. It used to be, you know, albums, and then it went to, you know, CDs and downloading. All of that's gone. Everything now is streaming. And streaming is terrible for musicians. It's great for Spotify because, you know, they're worth $50 billion, but musicians get paid nothing, you know, for streams. I also found that, the you know, going on Facebook and all the social media, it's a very limited relationship that you have to the people that are either watching you or listening to you. It takes no effort to hit a like button. Okay, there's no commitment there. And somebody said to me, well, why don't you think about a podcast? And the more I looked into it, the more I said, gee, this is a really interesting way to develop a much deeper, better relationship with people. And I said, I have a story that might resonate with people. I can do two things with this. Number one, I can show people that, again, you're never too old and it's never too late to follow whatever your dream might be, whether it's opening a store or developing a hobby or whatever it might be. And number two, it was a it was a way that I could put my music out there in a way that I thought would be very nice for me and for the audience. And introduce them to me and to the music at a much deeper level. So that's what I did. And I'm so pleased that it's worked out so nicely so far. I mean, the podcast is in the top 5%, they tell me. And uh, it led to something else. I I finally wrote a book. And I decided that I was going to write a book because people were saying to me, well, how did you do this? Okay. Why don't you tell people how you did it? And how can they do it? I said, okay, you're right. That's probably something I could do. So I wrote this thing that I call the Follow Your Dream Handbook. The name of the podcast is Follow Your Dream. I said, let me do the Follow Your Dream Handbook. And I named it the handbook because, you know, it's this is not war and peace. I didn't write a novel. I wrote something that was practical. It's kind of like half memoir of my dream journey. And the other half is a how-to. How did I do it? And I started out, as I mentioned before, with, you know, baby steps and, and coming up with an action plan. And then I put that out and it came out like the, you know, in, in August, it was launched and right away it became, you know, a a number one on Amazon, which was so thrilling. So that's the deal. That's what I'm doing these days. Did you have a plan there? No, I had no plan. I wasn't an author. I was just doing this to kind of capture, you know, my story, but I did find out that the way that you need to play Amazon, if you're an author, they have a million different niches. Okay. And if you just go out with a book and you say, uh, my niche is nonfiction, well, you're going to become, you know, number 10,483,000 on the list. But if you look for a niche 
that is a smaller niche where you can actually have some influence, well, then maybe you can make that book into something a little bit more special. And that's what I did. So if you if you were to look on Amazon for my book, it's under something like memoirs and biographies, jazz musicians, and rock musicians. So it's in a manageable kind of niche. And I think that's good because that also helps people find it. That's what the book is about. So why not help them find it in the place that they would be looking? I love that. I am curious. I'm not sure if your parents are still around, but did they know that you got back into music? They're not around. No, they didn't know that when I made the decision to do it full time, they didn't know they weren't around at that moment. But I do think about my father all the time. And I think about my mother, too. My mother was the one that made me practice, particularly when I switched from the piano to the trumpet. You know, again, I'm seven years old or something like that. You know, all I wanted to do was go out and play ball with my friends in the street. And my mother would say to me, I kid you not, no, you're going to practice for 30 minutes and then you can go out and play. Mom, I don't want to do it. Believe me, son, one day you're going to thank me for this. And she was right. You know, before she passed away, I did say to her, it was because of you that I became, you know, the musician that I have become. You wouldn't let me drop it. And I remember you telling me, you're going to thank me one day. Well, I'm thanking you today. That's so beautiful. I actually miss music. So I I can relate to what you said about that. I used to love to sing as a kid, and I've totally put that aside as well. If this is something you really wanted to do, then do it. You know in your gut whether it's something that really eats at you, that's in your core, or is it just kind of a passing fancy? If it's a passing fancy, you don't need to do it. But if it's in there, if it's wrapped up in your, you know, your stomach, your gut, which is where I think you feel and you know, you know, when something is right or wrong, where do you know it? You know it in your gut. You can intellectualize it all you want in your brain, but you kind of know it in your gut, whether you're telling yourself the truth or not. And if you have one of those dreams or one of those aspirations that's rolling around in your stomach, I think you have to do it. You just have to get, and it's the act of trying that to me is what it's all about. You know, people say to me, well, what if you weren't successful? I said, well, look, I'm not the Rolling Stones. I'm not playing, you know, stadiums for 100 million people, but I'm successful at the level that I aspire to. In fact, I'm successful at a level that I never thought I would get to. But it wasn't about success. You know, the, the old saw about it's the journey, not the destination. That's true. I think that if you do what you always wanted to do deep down, and you give yourself that chance, that's where the satisfaction is. That's where the the good feeling is. If you happen to succeed as well, it's like icing on the cake. But not every dream is going to succeed, okay? And people said to me when I decided to do this full-time, you know, you're crazy, you're way past your prime, you know, no one's going to listen to your music, you know, you don't play what's happening today. I said, you're right, all of those things are correct. But my guess is that there was a market for people that liked the kind of music that I was playing, and I'll find those people. It's one of the good things about social media. You can actually find these niches that you couldn't find in the old days before social media. Got to give it a try. That's that's beautiful. I really love that. And I'm so impressed that you've written the book. You've done the podcast. I mean, people procrastinate on these things for so long, and they're like, I don't know the technology. I don't know how to edit. I don't know the perfect title. And you've done it all, and it all flows together. I, I'm so <laughs> impressed with everything that you've done. Well, thank you. Look, part of it also is attributable to the pandemic. I mean, let's be honest. 
I started this podcast in March of 2021. You know, it was still a bleak time out there. And I think that the pandemic did something for most people. In fact, for a lot of people my age, it puts you in touch with your mortality, particularly at the beginning when there weren't any vaccines out there and nobody knew where this thing was going to go. You didn't know whether you would get it or not. You didn't know if you got it, whether it would be like a passing flu or whether you'd wind up in the hospital or God forbid, even worse than that. It made people, I think, pause and say to themselves, okay, I'm no longer going into an office. My life has changed. Like we're all on pause. What do I really want to do with my life? Am I happy? This is an excellent time for me to kind of reevaluate where I'm going and just kind of reaffirm if I'm on the right path. And if I'm not, get on the right path. And that's what happened with me too. I'm curious about if you've thought about licensing your music. Oh, sure. I mean, my music is out there. It, it can be purchased and it can be licensed, all of that. You know, I've got a store as part of our website, you know, all the usual things that musicians do. I haven't tried to do things like put the music on TV shows or in the movies yet. That's a whole separate area. I'm more interested at the moment in writing music and recording it and playing it live with my band. You know, I've written a lot of songs at this point, probably over a hundred. And people ask me, well, what is it like? And I said, if you have children, then you know exactly what it's like. Each one is like another child. And for me, because of the way that I've arranged things, my band is just, they're all wonderful musicians, much better musicians than me. And all of my band members have a couple of things in common. Number one, they're much younger. Number two, and I wanted that. I wanted to surround myself with their talent and their youth and their vitality. Okay. And that's what I get from them. Also, they're all from other countries. They've all come to the United States to make their mark. So right now in the band, I have people from Mexico, from Venezuela, from Puerto Rico, from Canada. It's a real melting pot. What that does is it allows them to bring forth their culture and their background, and we infuse all of that in the music. So I call the music that, I, that we do in the band a fusion of jazz, rock, and Latin, because those are the three major influences but I pride myself on the fact that my songs are all diverse. You know, there are artists out there, and I'm not going to name names, that basically write and play the same song over and over and over again. Look, they have wonderful audiences, and they're very successful, and I wish them well. But that wasn't for me. I, I wanted to be as diverse as possible, because I always admired artists that, that were diverse. What I do in part to, to foster that is I come in with my new songs and I only come in with a sketch. I never come in with a full outline and I never tell my, my musicians, play this or play that. And what happens is we give birth to the song together. And it's such an organic process because sometimes these songs turn out different than I envisioned them because they're bringing their talent and their perspective to things in a different way than I might have seen it. I think that that's great. You know, that's, that's the way that a band really functions as a, as a single unit when everybody is bringing together their talent and trying to make something, you know, special. And that's what we got. Is there anybody who you would love to collaborate with? Oh my God. The, the, the list is legion. I'm a gigantic fan. If, if there was one era, when, which was my era, it was kind of like the British invasion era. 
of the 60s. I mean, that's when I came of age musically. And my homage to that era is that on every album that we've done since I put the band together, I take at least one iconic song from that era and I reimagine it completely in our style. So I've done that for bands as diverse as the Beatles, the Kinks, the Who, Cream, Jimi Hendrix. You know, those were the people that I admired so much growing up. And one of the great byproducts of doing the podcast is that I've been able to meet musicians as guests that were my heroes growing up. I mean, I've had a stellar list of musicians on the podcast that sometimes I, I kind of, you know, knock my head to, to make sure I, I, I'm, I'm really doing this. I mean, everybody from Mark Stein of the Vanilla Fudge, Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, Jeff Lauber, Nathan East, who's Eric Clapton's bass player. I mean, I could go on and on and on. These are wonderful, wonderful musicians. And I have so much fun talking with them because I can talk to them as a peer. You know, I'm not like a 20-year-old kid talking to somebody that doesn't have the same experiences. And then I do something on the podcast that I think is pretty unique and that I love. I do this thing that I call a song fest, where I say to them, look, let's pick out three or four of your favorite songs, your best songs, and let's play them underneath. And let's talk about it. Let's tell everybody what the backstory is, the underneath that nobody really knows. And let's just have fun with it. And you know what? They all love doing that. And I love doing it too. That's where it's at. Can we do any of that here tonight? Is there anything that you can put underneath this? Well, you know, I sent you a song. Want to tell everybody what the name of the song is? Baby. My baby. So I, during the pandemic, I wrote and produced and recorded two albums, okay, during the pandemic. And it was totally different than any of the other albums that I had done because I couldn't practice, I couldn't rehearse with the band. We couldn't record together. And I, and yet I was writing music and I said, okay, what am I going to do? Because I got to do something. And at first we decided we'll put out videos of some of the songs we recorded because we did an album, we recorded an album that was released literally a month before the world closed down called East Side Sessions. And it was a really great album. And we released four videos of songs from that album. And that was great. But then I said, okay, I've got all these new songs. I'm going to record them. I was able to get some of the guys in the band. And what we used to do was go into the rehearsal studio. We'd rehearse like crazy. Then we'd go into the recording studio and we'd, and we'd record all together. Because so I think that's the way organically you get the best sound from my music but we couldn't do that. So here we were, I'm recording one part and I'm emailing it to one of the guys and he's emailing back his part. We're assembling it like a, like a Frankenstein. And anyway, I started to write songs and they were very different songs. And I decided they were very personal songs. And I decided I was going to sing these songs. Talk about a dream. Okay. I, I don't have a great singing voice, I, but I always wanted to sing. Okay. And I do harmony and background and all of that stuff. But I said to myself, all right, I'm going to take my shot. And the first album, which I called Summer of Love 2020, during the pandemic, I sang all the songs. And I was like holding my ears because I was thinking the blowback from that was going to be horrendous from all the critics. And to my great surprise, it was just the opposite. They all loved the songs they liked or, or they didn't dislike my singing on the songs. And that worked out. So I did a second album called Miller Rocks. This is again during the pandemic. I did something much closer to my rock and roll roots. And I wrote again all the songs and I sang all the songs. Well, one of the songs on that album 
Miller Rocks is called My Baby. And it's kind of got a 1950s-ish kind of feel to it. When you said to me, is there anything you could do that's a little bit different for the Better Call Daddy podcast? I said, well, you know, you're, you're somebody's baby. So I'm going to give you my baby for this one. So what you should be doing is playing that a little bit underneath when you go back and edit this thing so everybody can hear my baby. Oh, I love that. I have four little babies. There you I'm go. I'm going to play it for them. See what they think. I actually, on this new album, I wrote a song, a kid's song, first time that I wrote this, because I have grandchildren at this point, and I decided that I was going to write a song for my grandkids, and it's called To the Zoo, and I'm going to send you that song as well, because I think your, your kids are going to like the song. It's all about an imaginary visit to the zoo. Oh, that's great. I actually haven't even gotten to take my youngest to the zoo, because we've been hanging out at home for the last 18 months. <laughs> Well, you play him or her this song, and they'll want to go to the zoo after that, I promise you. That's so much fun. Wow. I can't believe you've written 100 songs. And to really think about the inspiration for what gets you to write a song, that's very interesting. You know, everybody's got a different way of writing. I have kind of an, a very odd way of writing. First of all, I write the music first. I never write the lyrics first. I admire but can't understand any of the artists that do it that other way. And I come up with an idea. And you know what? I never set out and say, I'm going to write such and such a song, or I'm going to write a song about this or that. It just kind of comes to me. And sometimes the, the subject matter of the song, I never even thought about before. It just, it just evolves. I go with it. You know, it's a, it's a quirky kind of way of writing things. There are some things where I've written some message songs. You know, back in the 1960s, there were a lot of folks that wrote message songs. You know, Bob Dylan would write songs like, you know, a hard rains are going to fall, that kind of thing. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young wrote Ohio about, you know, the Kent State shootings, things like that. But as time went on, fewer and fewer artists were willing to take controversial stands on anything. And it, it bugged me because as an artist, I think you have an obligation to take a stand on issues of social importance. And the first song that I wrote like that was a song that I wrote for, it was an anti-gun song. And it's very spare. I wrote it just for piano and voice. There's no band on it. I wrote it after the, in the aftermath of the mass shooting that took place at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, which was about two or three years ago. It's not that that mass shooting was different from other mass shootings. It just got to me that here we are, we're the most civilized country on earth, and yet we have more gun violence and more mass shootings than any other country. None of the politicians ever do anything about it. They talk about it in the aftermath. Everybody laments and moans, and nothing is ever done. And I, I wrote this song, and it's, it's very spare, it's stark, it's graphic, and it really struck a nerve when it went out. And then I re-released it after there was another mass shooting. I had set out at the beginning to kind of re-release it every time there was a mass shooting. Do you know how many mass shootings there are in this country? It's sickening. Okay. In the last couple of years, it's, it's something like, I don't know, 600 or something like that that's happened. So I would be re-releasing this song every other day if, if, if I did it that way. But my point is that I feel that a song like that was important. Because, you know, you need to address issues of that sort. 
What's really interesting about that is I'm getting ready to interview someone who stopped the shooting in Poway, San Diego. The guy who did the shooting just got sentenced to life like a week and a half ago. And there was a retired veteran who was at the show that day and stopped the shooting. He's coming to Chicago next month, and I'm actually interviewing him live. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to send you this song. I was like, your song maybe should be playing in the background of that event. You know, it, it really should. It would be a perfect song for you to play while you're interviewing him. Or we could definitely put it in in the edit. Oh, my gosh. It's a live stream. And now I even want to send you the link to that. I mean, wow. I actually was thinking, too, at the beginning of you telling me that. I was like, wow, could we collaborate on a piece? I, like, want to sing with you, even if we don't release it. You never know. You never know. That I'm open to crazy. almost everything. Okay. That's so amazing. Is there anything that you want to ask my dad? All right. Listen, Wayne, you should be very proud of your daughter. Okay. She's doing a fabulous job here. I'm very happy to hear about your time in Kentucky and the fact that you're married for 43 years. Good for you. I love that. I would be very happy if he would listen to a couple of things that I've just mentioned to you. I'd love to hear what he has to say about like the message song that I just mentioned to you. Okay. Tree of life. Let me hear what he has to say, because he's been through everything just as I have. I'd love to get his perspective. He is going to love that. And his father also loved music. Yeah, my grandfather did the lights for Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> yeah, and he had family members, too, that were in show business. So it's funny, but the reason that I ended up working in, in TV and moving to L.A. and wanting to, you know, do that was completely from my, my dad. He always glamorized Hollywood. It's so interesting that he didn't end up doing that. But yeah. Well, he was working for a living, right? He was working for a living. Ask him if he had a dream. I definitely want young. to. Okay. But, you know, he could be exactly the kind of person that, that we were talking about. You know, somebody that wanted to do something, maybe wanted to be in Hollywood, maybe wanted to be in film. But, you know, he fell into that manufacturing thing. And then he had you and he had, you know, maybe other children and he had your mom and the, his parents and all the responsibilities come right out to the fore. But that's the world. As long as he doesn't have any deep regrets, that's another thing you should ask him. Does he have any real regrets? Doesn't sound to me like he does. I actually, one thing that I very much admire about my dad is that he's happy with his lot. He doesn't want to take trips around the world or live a fancy life. He is happy with his life. And I, I love that about him. And he's also happy with who he is and beats to his own drum. I didn't like that as a child. I was actually embarrassed by it. But now <laughs> I love that about him. Cool. That's so good. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Same here. Thanks so much, Rena. You're a, you're a charming lady. Oh, this has been an absolute dream. Promote away too. Well, I guess the best thing would be, again, it's the Follow Your Dream podcast. So you can go, you can reach me at followyourdreampodcast.com. My music is Project Grand Slam, which is at projectgrandslam.com. And my book is the Follow Your Dream Handbook at Amazon and all leading booksellers. <laughs> I love it. Just continued success. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care and say hi to your dad for me, okay? I will. Have a beautiful night. You too. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. I listened to that song. I thought it was pretty good. All right.
Uh, I think maybe this is your chance to finally sing. You got a decent band. The band sounded pretty good. Maybe you can make some music after all. I think Robert's got the new star singer to help lead his band. Rena Joy, my baby. Oh my gosh, dad. That's great. <laughs> I listened to his episode, but I don't think that he could have been as successful and as determined as he is now without all the experience that he went through first. I think that he was able to take advantage also of this pandemic where he was able to really put together his own podcast, write a book. Having that law background gives you that logical way to think. As you know, your father went to law school then he found out he doesn't like lawyers at all. But the fact is, is that being a chess player, going to law school, working full time and going to school at night for years, you don't have time to waste. You don't have time to be wishy-washy. You don't have time to not be able to put something together in a constructive plan, a step at a time, so that you can fit everything in. Also, as you know, I was on the debating team in high school also. We went to the championship round the first year we were in it, Jeff Chebbin and myself. So the fact is, is that even I, I mentioned to you before that debates are won and lost in the rebuttal round, where you only have two minutes to sum up or to make an argument to win the game. And all of these experiences that he had, just like I have, is what added to his wisdom rating and also made him be in a position where he could pivot and do what he is passionate about and what he loves to do. You can't do some of those things, as he's mentioned, if you have to work, to make a living, to be responsible to your family. You have sometimes commitments that you have to make to help other people that you love. And in my case, my dad's success was just as important to me. And after failing in business a few times, I was committed with my mom to make him have that opportunity to be successful. And as you know, we ran a business together for 45 years. And his dream is like his baby, uh, that Metalite. And even though I'm outsourcing the work, we've kept Metalite alive even after the factory is closed for another eight years. It's unbelievable. I knew you would relate to his story. Oh, I loved it. I think he's got it all together, but he can't get to where he is now without taking the path that he took. I really also just love the idea that he also likes to collaborate and surround himself with talent, as we've talked before, and putting together a band of talented people from several countries and several different music backgrounds and finding people that can really play also. That band really sounded just wonderful together. Shows that he has also a knack for talent. And uh, I would like to think that your father's success was also having a knack for talent and surrounding myself also with people in all different areas and categories to help me be more successful. You don't become successful doing it all by yourself. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 